If you can open your Bibles this morning to the book of Daniel, which is of course in the Old Testament. It is after the prophets of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, right after Ezekiel. The book of Daniel, we'll begin with uh, some readings from chapter 2. Chapter 1 deals with Daniel and his three friends in the courts of King Nebuchadnezzar, learning the culture, the language, and the philosophy of the Babylonians. And in chapter 2, we deal with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We'll not read the whole chapter, it's very lengthy, but we'll read parts of it, and uh, I'll, I'll lead you through that. So Daniel chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm, if you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. And there continues his dialogue with the the astrologers and the wise men, and they end up not being able to tell him his dream, and he makes a decree that they all will be killed. Moving down to verse 17. And of course, Daniel and his three friends are amongst that crowd. Well, begin at verse 14, actually. Then the counsel and wisdom, Dan- then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the camp. The- captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? And Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time and he, that he might tell the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes the kings and raises up the kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God, my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demands. If we scroll down to verse 31, we'll continue at verse 31. You, O king, now Daniel is speaking to the king. You, O king, were watching and behold a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its form was awesome. 
This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out with hands, without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer's threshing floors. The winds carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone was struck, the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them unto your hands and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom, kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, and as much as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with the ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, then they will, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to another people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. This is the word of the Lord. After the sermon, we will sing in response to the preaching of the gospel from Psalm 46, 3 and 5. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we live in frightening times. If we were to survey the international scene at present, we can become easily unsettled. I don't know if you know this, but in 60 countries of this world, Christians are being persecuted for standing up for the name of Jesus. Did you know that? Some are simply maligned. Some lose their property. Some are tortured. Some are imprisoned. And some are killed. If we were to focus on, on Canada, as this dominion we call Canada, things are not looking that much better here, also for us as Christians. 
There seems to be an agenda from the political and the, from the national and the provincial governments to, 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 to exclude Christ from, from every forum, from every venue. There is an anti-Christian agenda. And, and the gospel, what we preach in here is, is fine provided it stays within the four walls shunted into this place and does not speak into the public arena. It's fine if it's in here. It's not fine if it's out there. But when you bring it out there, be ready for the consequences. The world, our present world, hates Christ and hates the church. And this present world is about to collapse. These are the kingdoms of the world, beloved. And in connection to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we call, we'll call them this morning the kingdoms of men or the kingdom of men. Not that we want to exclude women as part of this kingdom, but because we saw in the dream a colossal man. And, 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 and what's characterizing these kingdoms, this kingdom of men, it, it's characterized by power, it's characterized by glory, by fame, by might, by greed, by war, by the lust of the flesh, and a vain attempt to secure justice without the word of God bearing on what, to, what is just and what is not, because they hold the word in contempt. Babylon, you understand, during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, some 600 years before Christ, was such a kingdom. It was a kingdom of men. So esteemed was Babylon that it was considered in historical literature the house of the foundation of the heaven and the earth. That's how people viewed Babylon in its day. The house of the foundation of heaven and earth. What pride. It was arrayed with power, with glory, with decadence and wealth. It had at least one of the seven wonders of the ancient world in their hanging gardens. Nebuchadnezzar's wife, I read somewhere, is, was a gardener. She loved gardens. And Nebuchadnezzar had money. Compared to Jerusalem, Babylon was staggeringly advanced. It was many times larger and more advanced than Jerusalem. It was the prototype for all other empires that would follow in its wake. It was powerful, attractive, dangerous, totalitarian, and it was built on human pride. And that characterizes, beloved, the kingdom of men. I think you remember in chapter 4, if you know the book of Daniel, in chapter 4, Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was on his house or on his palace, and he was overlooking Babylon, and he said, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by the might of my power for my residence and for the glory of my majesty, is this not what I have done? That characterizes, beloved, the kingdoms of this world. And everyone, beloved, whether former citizens of Babylon or present citizens of Canada are faced with a two-kingdom reality. Or as Augustine in the city of God who wrote during the fall of Rome said, we either part of the city of God or we're part of the city of man and the twain shall never meet. One is characterized by holiness, one is characterized by righteousness, one is characterized by truth 
and endurability, and the other is characterized by an endless pursuit of the flesh, of lust, of the pride of men. What does that mean for you, beloved, and me? Well, as God's people, we are called to discern between these two kingdoms. For if there is a city for men to bathe in their sin and hostility to God, there is a city whose architect and builder is not men, but God. And we need to probe our hearts, even this morning, as citizens of the dominion of Canada, we have to probe our hearts, even this morning, to see where and where our allegiance lies. Does it lie in the eternal kingdom of the heaven, of our heavenly king, or does it lie in the, in the kingdoms of men, in their philosophy, which is against God, in the promotion of self? We need to learn to discern the truth concerning the kingdom of men. That will be our morning's message and, and this e- afternoon, it may go into the evening, this afternoon we will, we will consider the kingdom of our heavenly king. So stay tuned. There's four things I want to just un- unpack for you this morning as we consider the kingdom of men. And the first thing that I want to share with you this morning that the kingdom of men is a material kingdom. That is, it, it, it's, it, 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 it's derived from a materialistic point of view. And a materialistic point of view is basically this, that what you see and what you touch, what you feel with your senses is all that you have and all that there ever will be. There's nothing beyond what you see in the sky. There's nothing beyond what you feel and enjoy on this earth. That's a materialistic point of view, also a naturalistic point of view. In the kingdom of men is based on that point of view. Now we need to understand the context of our chapter. It was roughly about 600 years before Christ that we had this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Now Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the known world. And he was bathing in his, his, his conquest. He was bathing in his defeat of, of the nations around him. And he just continued to assume and consume their wealth. And we learn that in chapter 1 that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem when Jehoiakim was king. And when he attacked, he went into the treasury. He, he took out the treasures from the, from the house of God. And he took some of the nobility, some of the ruling class. And he took their young men. We know he, they took their young men. And, and one of those young men was, was Daniel. He may have been 16 years old, abandoned, rejected, forced to learn another language, forced to be away from the house of God, forced to learn another religion. Thankfully, he didn't absorb it as his own, and forced to learn the philosophy of the, of the Babylonian Empire. But there he was, there he was in the king's college, and it doesn't seem to me long after he was enrolled in that college, maybe a year or two, he was confronted by the need to interpret a dream. And that's where we are this morning. Nebuchadnezzar, we read, now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar, verse 1 of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. His sleep left him. It was a terrifying dream. 
Just a few days ago, I was in the car with my son who's four years old, and he was with a friend who was four years old. I don't think that friend's here this morning. I'm looking around for him. And the friend was sharing his dream to my son. And I, I piped in, and I said, that, that's, that's quite the dream. He said, no, no, it wasn't a dream. It was a nightmare. <laughs> that's what Babylon, that's what Nebuchadnezzar had, a nightmare. So terrified was, was Nebuchadnezzar with this dream that when he woke in the morning, and sleep had left him, so he got up early in the morning, he called his astrologers, he called his sorcerers, he called the magicians, he called the Chaldeans, he called them into his room and said, you need to tell me what I dreamt and you need to interpret it. If you do not, I will slaughter you. At least I'll burn down your houses. And they said, but king, we, that's impossible. And he said, no. And he had this dialogue going on with these men who were supposed to be the wise men, who had connection with the other world, who were supposed to bring in the information from the other world. And they said, it's impossible. He said, I then have a decree that you will all die. He sent Arioch as his captain of the guard to fulfill these orders from one dream. And you see the problem here? the problem of our ages the problem is is that the Babylonians were materialistic it's the same problem that we find in our present world they live in this world without a connection to the sovereign transcendent God and because they have no connection to him, the one who can reveal truth, who knows the past, the present, and the future, because there is no connection with the transcendent one, all their resources are exhausted to try to deal with what we call the paranormal, what we call something extraordinary, something supernatural. They, they cannot deal with it in a materialistic frame of reference. They had many gods. I read somewhere that Babylon had 1,200 temples. This is no small city. 1,200. They had a pantheon of gods that they were worshiping. And yet they were powerless. These gods were just figments of their imagination. What they, what they thought up, they, they created into a god, and these gods were carnal, they were immortal, I mean, they were mortal, they were carnal, they, they were fleshly. They were just materialists. Beloved, in our current culture, it's no different. We have our temples here as well, beloved. Our temples of, of fitness, of glorifying the self. That's in real time and space. And we have our temples on social media to glorify us. That's in cyberspace. And we have our worship centers, which we call malls and power centers. I love that name. What power? And for some, they go to their shrines, which is to, to, to engage in every type of lustful desire and, and, and to use all these different vices to, to, to gratify the self. We have our shrines, we have our temples in our current culture because our current culture is materialistic. 
And the problem that the Babylonians face and the problem that our world faces is that materialism produces nothing. There is no ultimate power in a power center. They cannot provide revelation into the future and they cannot save us from the peril that awaits every man and woman on earth. But Daniel was not a materialist. He understood, he understood the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He believed in Yahweh, and he understood his commands were real, and he understood that God sends dreams at times in history to reveal the truth of what's going to happen later in, in the future, and he understands that not only does God sometimes sends dreams like to Pharaoh, he also interprets them. And that's why after he meet, met Arioch, probably somewhat bemused by Arioch's frenzy state, he says, just hold on. We have to do what every follower of Christ must do in a time of undue stress or any stress. And that is to fall on our knees and implore the throne for God to intercede, to show us his will. These guys were maybe 17, 18 years old. And it's probably the first prayer meeting in Babylon. They get together and they implore the throne of grace for God to reveal the mystery. Take heart, young men and women. When you gather for prayer, it's not in vain. And they prayed and, and God answered their prayer. And, and, and then Daniel, as a response to the answer, just opens up his heart. And by God's grace, he, he pens one of the most beautiful, short, crypt, almost cryptic piece of literature to praise God for who he is and what he can do. Those are the verses before us this morning in, in 20 and 23. You should meditate on those this afternoon. That's a young man, maybe 17, 18, penning those verses like King David to the glory of God. You see the opposite, beloved, of a materialist. And I don't know what you are. I hope to think that none of you are materialistic in a philosophy of trying to find your joy in the things of this world. But you have to understand, beloved, this morning that the opposite of a materialist is a worshiper of God is a tr one who realizes that everything you see will one day turn into dust. But there is a transcendent God who reveals his will and tells you exactly what is to come. And Daniel was a worshiper. He was not a materialist. And he understood that all things are from God and flow back to God. And God reveals dreams. And God has a plan. And God will reveal his will. And his will will be done. Beloved, this world, maybe even family members, cousins, friends, who have been categorized by the kingdom of our age, the philosophy of our dark world, will go to great length to try to convince you that God does not exist. Maybe you know some of these people. But it's a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell. We are not materialists. We're not naturalists. 
We are worshiping saints who believe in the supernatural power of the Almighty God who controls and governs everything, even the dreams of the ancients. Do you believe that? Not only does the kingdom of men produce a materialistic worldview that's wanting, the kingdom of men must realize that all kingdoms on the earth are sourced from God. He has power over all the imperial powers and forces of our world. That's verse 36 and 37. He says, now we're into the interpretation. He says in verse 36, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given uh, the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory into whose hand he has given wherever uh, they may dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And I think when you read this sentence, this, this, these two sentences possibly, 36 and 37, uh, you realize that they could be a lot shorter. Daniel could have come to King Nebuchadnezzar and said, oh, you, O oh king, the king of kings, you are the head of gold. The ESV kind of has a, a dash. I think maybe you have a dash right before that. You are the head of gold. I think you may have a dash before that. That could have just captured the sentence. There's a, there's a subject and there's a verb and there's an object. That's a sentence I, I read somewhere. You, O king, are the king. You, O king, are the head of gold. That's, that's what you need to know. No, he did not need to know that. He was the head of gold. But he needed to know this. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and in the glory into your hands. It's not your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. You're just a servant, a subject. I sent you to Jerusalem. Yes, you are a superpower. And yes, Jerusalem is a staggering little pawn in your hands, and, and, and it was easy for you to consume it, Jerusalem. But I let you in as an agent to, to fulfill the, the, the promises of the covenant that if you, if you disobey me, God says in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, if you disobey my law, that the curses of the covenant will be upon you and you will have foreign nations destroy you. You are that nation who went to destroy my people. What do you have, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, what do you have that you have not received? That's us today. And Nebuchadnezzar had to learn, as the world leaders have to learn, that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Proverbs 21. God does the moving. That's still the same today. And Nebuchadnezzar's struggle is, is, is identified here because Nebuchadnezzar thought he was God. That he had done so much, he had so much at his disposal, so much power, so much wealth. And so intense was his pride that the only way for God to strip him of his pride was to send him into the bush or send him into the fields as a wild ox to drink water and to chew grass. 
I think that was an act of great mercy. And what mercy God would show the leaders of this world who trumpet their own cause and defame God's glory in their pride if God did this more often. Sending people into the field as wild oxes. So bend the knee, Putin. Trump, Xi Jinping, Mohammed Ahmadinejad, and no less President or Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, you men and, and all the other world leaders need to humble themselves because they are not in control. God is in control. He is the sovereign over every dominion, even this dominion we call Canada. We need to grab two, this, two things from this point that God is in control. And the first is this. That we have no use and we should take no time in trusting our political elites. In a democratic country, we spend a lot of time discussing politics, which is okay. It's great discussions. I love discussing politics too. Know very little. But at the end of the day, when Obama was, was Barack Obama was, was president, they were, he had a savior complex. People were giving him a savior complex. But Barack Obama was going to save America. He was going to reunite the, 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 the African Americans and the, and the white Americans. And he was going to bring them all together and bring this beautiful salvation to America. He didn't. He failed. Trump is the new savior of America. He's failing and so is Trudeau. Psalm 146 says, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and that very day his plans perish. That's the outcome of all the world leaders, beloved. All the leaders of the past, some are despotic, some are, some are not, some are murderers, some are raving lunatics, some are today still raving lunatics, and one day they will all be dust. We do not put our trust in the political elite. We pray for them. We put our trust in God. But you say, well, I'm not a president or a prime minister. I'm just a nobody. Yeah, but everyone struggles with their own little kingdom. We can be proud of our little fiefdoms. We can be proud of what we own and what we've acquired and what we feel we're entitled to. And our hearts can conjure up vain glory, just like Nebuchadnezzar, to glory in what we own and think that we have earned it. And, and, and at that root is a sin that says, God, you're not needed in this picture. It's mine and mine to enjoy to the glory of my name. God forbid that we do not give him the glory for the little or for the much we have. To some God gives much, to others he gives little. It's the heart that God looks at. And one day it will turn to dust and one day he'll return to take you home. There's another thing that we need to realize in this kingdom of men and that is this. That the kingdom of man is focused on vain glory. I think you've gathered that already. Vain glory. It's all about the image. It's all about the image. In the kingdom of men, it's all about image. You saw, O king, 
a great image. So the Bible says, this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. And I think this is from the ESV. The, the New King James says, awesome. And we learn that this head of image, the head was gold, a brilliant gold. The, the chest and arms was silver. The middle of the thighs were bronze. The legs and feet were iron and clay. And, the, and, and it's generally con- assumed by, by consensus, at least amongst the scholarship, that we're talking about the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire under Philip II and, and, uh, and Alexander the Great. And then we're talking about the Roman Empire, the four empires divided into east and west. Later, the Roman Empire. But that's not in the text. It's just as we read the book of Daniel, it points to those kingdoms. But what is in the text is this. That these kingdoms is one kingdom represented by one colossal man. A really big man. It was an ode to man. And it's noteworthy that this colossal man was exactly what Nebuchadnezzar wanted as a picture of himself. He wanted to be larger than life. That's the burden of most leaders. He wanted the glory. He wanted the fame. In fact, he wanted it so much that after this chapter, he gets his guys to build a 90-foot image a statue, a man, and he asked all his citizens to bend down and worship the statue. Because that would bring him glory. Because he was all about his image. The kingdoms of men in this world are many kingdoms, but they're actually only one kingdom, and they represent one philosophy, one ideology, and that is to bring glory to itself. It's completely, intrinsically looking at itself. And it does more than that. The kingdom of men do not only want to not look at God, but look at self. They want to dethrone God and act as if he does not even exist do you remember babel children the beginning of the bible why did they build the tower of babel they built the tower of babel children as you know to create a name for themselves to say look at us Look at what we can build. Maybe you do not know this, but Babel is another name for Babylon in the Old Testament scriptures. And Babylon throughout scriptures symbolizes human glory and a drive to dethrone God and make earth its own. You can read about that in Revelation 17 and 18. You see, we don't have the, the Tower of Babel. We have the, the Burj Khalifa in, uh, in, in Dubai, which looks kind of like a ziggurat, looks like a, a building that was modeled Babel. It goes up 160 floors. It's the tallest building in the world. Why did they build it? I don't know. It's ironic, though, that it looks a little bit like Babel could look like, and 
that it's in the Middle East, and that it's towering. It's an ode to man for vain glory. What's the Tower of Abel in your life? If the kingdom of men are all about image, and as sinful people who have from the dawn of time struggled with our own image, our own self-image, our own desire for self-promotion, for the glory of our name. What is the Babel in your life? What is the Babylon in your life? One of the reasons why social media exists, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but one of the reasons why social media exists, it exists because of our pension, our passion for image. We want the Lord, we want the Lord, we want people to look at us and say, wow, she's beautiful. He's handsome. He's smart. Whoa, those kids are geniuses. And we just broadcast that as if that's normal. To showcase our life, to showcase our family, our burdens we hide behind us. But what we want to present to the world, we do that. It's all about image. And, and at the end of the day, it's, it's vain. I challenge you and I challenge myself every single time you post something on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever you're using these days to pray to God first to say, does this bring you glory, O oh God? Because the ways of the kingdom of this world is to defame you, it's to not bring you glory. The authors, the founders of social media, for Facebook example, knew that we are narcissistic. They knew that we desire to promote self, and that's why it worked. How many Facebook users are there out there? I'm one of them. I think something in the area of two billion. Have we hit the two billion mark? You can tell me afterwards. Most of it, not all of it, there's some great stuff on Facebook. A lot of it, if unchecked, is for the glory of men. It's vanity upon vanities. It's image. It's Babylon. It's prone to destruction. Jesus says, and the world is passing away along with all its desires, even the desire to self-promote. And by grace given us from above, we need to learn to discern this vain spirit of Nebuchadnezzar. Does it live in our hearts? And if it does, because I know it does, it lives in my heart as well, we need to confess that sin and we need to pursue the righteousness and the holiness of Christ and ask him for forgiveness from it. This is my last point. As we deal with the kingdom of men. That the power of this kingdom is fueled, even directed by, enticed, induced, aligned to the underworld, Satan. That what continues to fuel this passion, what continues to fuel this kingdom of men to dethrone God and promote self is fueled not from heaven but from hell. Yes, these kingdoms will persist. 
Nations will rise against nations, and the end will come. They will all together be destroyed. These nations are like a drop in a bucket, God says. But there's more to this picture that meets our eye, and the rest of Daniel works this out. That behind this image and this passion, Satan lurks and Satan leads. You have to understand that there is a spiritual battle at war. Chapter 10 speaks about an angel sent from God to give understanding to Daniel. Maybe you know that chapter. Daniel's praying. He's seeking God. He's fasting. He's praying. And an angel comes to Daniel in his prayer and says, I was held up. I was sent from heaven, but I was held up in Persia. Well, what were you doing there? I was held up in Persia by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Who's that prince? Another one of the devil's workers. I was held up. Until Michael came, the archangel, and I was able to get out of there to come to you. You see, when you live as a materialist, you may think that it's all you see and what you see is all you get and that's everything. And when you die, you'll just turn to dust and it will all be over. That's a lie. Because behind what you see and feel, there is a spiritual war. There is a spiritual battle going on. It's what we call in, in mission the forgotten middle. In, the, in Papua New Guinea, we, they don't forget the middle. But in Canada, in the U.S., in Europe, in Australia, we have just forgotten the middle. The other day I was in a church and a couple came in to church. And they were almost shaking. They, 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 they were so scared. There was a young man of 19 years old. He was from Russia. His parents in Russia, he was sent to a school here to learn there's a girl with him, his girlfriend, who was 17 years old from Brazil, parents in Brazil, family in Brazil. And they had got involved in the high school with the occult, with the worship of Satan, which, if you don't know, is growing in our public systems. And they experienced some of that darkness, and it riddled them with fear. And I came to church and they asked for prayer and they asked for guidance from the Lord. They wanted to know that there's someone bigger, someone stronger than the demonic activity, that the Satan that is lurking in the background trying to entice, trying to entangle, trying to ensnare the peoples of this earth. Scripture calls the devil the prince of the power of the air. Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. He rules by God's permission, and he has dominion over the kingdom of men by God's permission. But Satan, under God's permission, is the one who's deceiving, pulling in, and anyone who has denied God, who has not entrusted their life to God, is, 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 a, is a pawn in the devil's hand. And he has lots of them. But ponder this, and this has given us hope, because we live in a frightful world with a devil who is enticing this, the nations to go against God and lead them down the path to darkness, and we're watching that happen in our political arena, we're watching that happen in our social arenas, and we just realize that the world in so many ways is going to hell in a handbasket. 
but we have hope, beloved. We have comfort. It's very interesting that when Christ came to earth, and he is the stone, we'll learn about that this afternoon, he is the stone that crushes the kingdoms. He crushes the kingdom of men. He crushes the spirit of this, of this godless age. He just crushes it. But when Christ started his ministry, the first place he didn't go was to Herod or to Rome to confront the, the power-hungry, greedy, war-thirsty men who were leading the nations. No, the first place he went was into the wilderness to meet the devil. Christ understands that behind these men is a devil enticing, leading, guiding them. And when he met Satan, this is what Satan does. Because Satan knows that Christ came to conquer. So, Christ, so Satan tries to align Jesus to his philosophy of this age. He tries to align Jesus to come inside this philosophy of the kingdom of men. He takes Jesus to a high hill. This is Matthew 4. He takes Jesus to a very high mountain. He says, he says look at this. And somehow God opened his eyes to be able to see the, universe, to see the whole world. And he says, look at these kingdoms. You see all these kingdoms? I can give them to you if you bend the knee to me. They're all yours. I can make you more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar. I can give you more fame than all the kings of the earth could gather together throughout the history of the world. You could be king over every single kingdom. You won't have to die. You won't have to go the way of suffering. You won't have to do anything. You could just gather up the fame. That was a temptation because it was the easier road. It's the temptation for every one of you in the pew this morning to align yourself with the kingdom of men because it's so easy. To deny God in your life, to deny his holiness, to deny his righteousness and align yourself with the, the wares and the fares of this dark world to say it's all about me, I just want to gratify the flesh. It's so easy. Our carnal, sinful nature hungers for that. Christ had to face that dead on. And he looked at Satan. He looked him right in the eyes. I'm sure he did. He said, get behind me, Satan. She'll worship. Get this. Because Jesus is not a materialist. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. The opposite to a materialist is a worshiping saint. And Jesus was the ultimate worshiping saint. But the comfort there for us, beloved, is this. That Satan listened. He did get behind him. He disappeared. From the words of his mouth, Satan can be vanquished. He has no power over the king of kings. And for the rest of 
Christ's life, Satan is lurking in the background, trying to trip up his disciples, trying to trip up the people so that they would, would entice Jesus not to go to the cross, not to go to the way of death, not to go the way of suffering for his people, just to live the life of fame and glory. But Jesus went to the cross, our blessed Savior, and we learn that on the cross, not only did he redeem us from this dark age, this dark world, not only did he secure our citizenship in heaven, because in our sin we cannot secure anything in heaven, not only he did that, but he also did this, he crushed Satan's head. He left him powerless to take us from him. And so beloved, there is a kingdom in this world and it's the kingdom of men and there's a kingdom of heaven and we will learn about that this afternoon but the kingdom of this world has its enticements has its snares has a satan a devil that is trying to lurk us tempt us pull us into its darkness which will lead only to hell that's clear but we have nothing to fear we have absolutely nothing to fear because in Christ, who won that battle against the devil and against sin and death, because Christ calls us into his secure kingdom and nothing can move us once we're in. We are in and we are in to stay. We are in by faith in him. Even as the kingdoms of this world may seek to defame us, discredit us, disown us, degrade us, demean us, devalue us, detain us, derail us, dehumanize us, deliver us to be sentenced to death, we know in whom our hope is founded and our allegiance is secure in Christ, and we have nothing to fear. And one day when Christ returns, and the kingdoms of men assemble before him, they will all be vanquished. Satan and his host will be sent into everlasting destruction and only Christ's people will ascend with him and, be, and descend with him onto an earth that's eternal where the kingdom of men will no longer exist.